welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian Alfry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Guadalupe T. Luna, Emeritus Professor of Law at Northern Illinois University College of Law. We will discuss her article, This Land Belongs to Me, Chicana's Land Grant Adjudication and the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which is published in the Harvard Latino Law Review. So welcome to the show, Guadalupe. Greetings, Brian. I'm looking forward to talking to you about this because it's a, a, a history that I'll confess, even though I'm from California uh, originally, I didn't really know anything anything about. Uh, so for listeners who are in the same boat that I was before reading your article, <laughs> I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was, when it was formed, and sort of what the purpose of the treaty was specifically in relation to land ownership. Well, you're in the majority. Many are unaware of the treaty. And even though they were raised in the state affected by the treaty, the treaty is a peace agreement between the United States and Mexico signed in 1848. It culminated actually terminating, more specifically, the war between the United States and Mexico uh, in 1848. It is codified in approximately, I believe it's 23 covenants they're called, promises between the United States and Mexico. It's an exciting document because it's still alive. It's a living document. It has a terrific history with tremendous uh, impacts on law and rural America and even extending it to the present in terms of what we're facing today. There's a wide range of issues implicated to the treaty. The treaty itself promised to protect those remaining in the United States following the war. Approximately 800,000 Mexican citizens comprised primarily of Mexicans, but surprisingly so, Native Americans were covered under the treaty. Odd to reconcile with the fact that they were not recognized as citizens, as the treaty provides in American law, but the treaty promised to protect Native Americans, although there is some heinous language regarding Native Americans in the treaty, and other covenants promise to protect the property rights, the liberty rights, the religious rights, the language rights of those residing in the United States after war, because you had huge populations, as I said, residing on tremendous acres of land. And one part of that population group that fascinated me were the women that also remained. Well, so I wonder if you could provide a little bit of a kind of a, a backdrop or an explanation about what United States and Mexican law in relation to women and land ownership was at the time. In other words, were they largely similar or were there salient differences between how the United States and Mexico viewed women uh, and land ownership? Correct. Under ancient Spanish law, ancient Mexican law, Mexico operating under the civil law legal regime recognized the legal autonomy of women. Women could own land independent of male relationships. And so you did have women migrating to the northern provinces, California, New Mexico, Arizona, all sorts of uh, areas, and setting up agricultural regimes because the conditions subsequent to property ownership required that they settle some sort of agricultural enterprise, some sort of industry to provide revenue and taxes to Mexico. And direct opposition or in conflict, you have the common law in the United States, in the United States, which totally negated 
women agency or their autonomy. Women had to be, in pursuing legal issues, for example, their rights of ownership, had to yield to male relationships. So they lacked the legal autonomy that women under Mexican law recognized, enjoyed, and exercised. They were not shy at all about exercising the legal rights. I've dug into so many archival documents where women are chasing their legal rights. It's a fascinating issue to study. Well, so at the time the treaty was signed, were there a significant number of former Mexican citizens living in what then became the United States, uh, owning significant amounts of land? Approximately 800,000 people remained in those territories in the northern provinces. Difficult to get give you a concrete uh, exact number because many resided in empresario grants where you had uh, a number of people owning land collectively. And that would be in areas of very scarce re- uh, natural resources. For example, in the arid desert area, they set up agricultural practices that maximize the collective by way of water usage, as an example. So you have acequias that are still around today in New Mexico. They have their own societies, and an acequia will benefit a large number of people as opposed to just one person owning all the water, as in California. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so in the paper, you talk extensively about women making claims in relation to land ownership and land grants in particular. Were there a lot of women or a significant number of women in that position at the time? And you know, how were people in general and women in particular coming into ownership of these tracts of land? Well, that goes back to Mexican law, the colonization law of 1828 in Mexico, where you had land grant procedures. They were known as land grants, but they were not. There was consideration. If I chose to follow that law, I would have applied for a body of law for me personally as a woman, and I would have ended up somewhere in the California territories or throughout the Southwest. So there was a procedure in force with different covenants with conditions subsequent also attached to my wanting to go out there and seek property. So yes, a lot of women went. The first census of Los Angeles gives specifics of several women being the first to go to Los Angeles, along with uh, Native Americans, indigenous from Mexico, for example, and African-Americans, as we know of them today. So what was Mexican land law like at that point in time when these grants were being made? In other words, when people received a land grant, uh, presumably, as you say, you know, with consideration of various kinds, like what was the nature of ownership? How did they own the land? Did they have ongoing obligations? And sort of what happened to ownership of that land or what was supposed to happen after the treaty when the land in question was incorporated into the United States? Okay, so first, land-grant procedures obligated a series of promises going back and forth. An exciting moment for me was when I was preparing for property law the first time, and I saw the act of Sison, the way it was performed in Mexico. So you would have to go to your little plot of land and actually engage in a a ceremony of transferring the property from A to B. They had surveyors. I want to say it was a little loose, but they did have a survey system, surveying system as we 
know of today when we engage in title searches in property law, we have to survey the land that we're proposing to buy. Same situation. And in fact, many of the property law, deed law, mortgage law, for example, derives from that period in California. So you would have to have primary evidence that required a map. These maps are gorgeous to look at. Uh, The few that have survived, the deeds are wonderful to look at. They're surviving in the fewer that were collected are in Washington. I had to chase them in California, for example. I found some. Most of them were lost, however, when Captain Fremont uh, stole, went directly to where the deeds were held and stole the deeds and got rid of them, which proved problematic for those choosing to remain in the, Mex- in the former Mexican territories. Second, after uh, the Treaty of Guadalupe Dango, if I owned that land, I passed all my conditions subsequent. All the correspondence went back and forth between United States, well, Mexico, the Northern Territories, and Mexico itself. I could not alienate that land without permission from Mexico. Also, I could not own land, although it was not consistently applied, uh, to the extent that I could not harm the indigenous population that was surrounding the area. A little bit of controversy behind that with much harm, irreparable harm to Native Americans dating back to the Spanish missions in California. But nonetheless, there were there was a rigorous set of details. Sad to say, the colonization law did not limit land uh, to Mexican citizens, but also to settlers from the United States or the American Republic, it was called back then. Part of the question is really a fascinating question because it opens up all sorts of trajectories involving formerly owned Mexican land. I call them Mexicans, even though they were primarily Spanish in New Mexico, the indigenous population. And I don't mean to cluster them or collapse them into one ideal, but the treaty references Mexicans. So that's my obligation if I'm going to hold true to the literal words of the treaty. After the war, the United States, and actually began during the ratification of the treaty, started changing the promises it made to those of us remaining in the conquered territories. So although I relied, recall I'm the one that's chasing this property, I own property, I own thousands of acreage, I have performed according to the conditions subsequent, and there were beautiful ranchos around in California, lots of roads. In fact, the United States military took over a couple for military purposes, and I'm trusting the United States promises it made in this living document. Sad to say, the opposite happened. From the ratification of the treaty to when the treaty was signed, the United States changed a couple of covenants, and so people in Texas found themselves wandering. I, if I'm the person involved in California, find that my land is now being challenged. Now I have to prove that the property is mine. Now in property law, to prove property is yours, you have to show primary documents. My primary documents, the ones that didn't survive, were stolen by Captain Fremont, the pathfinder of the West, who claimed California for the American Republic. So how am I going to prove that that property is mine? Well, Mexico also had what's known as a reliance on business. uh, In business modern law, we rely on custom and practice. So that was another way. 
So even in American law, I could have said, I have been on this property for 70 years. My father had it first, and I got it when he passed on. The problem is the United States kept watering down its promises, diluting what it had said to those remaining. And consequently, the evidentiary burden that I'm now facing is insurmountable. Here's one example of this very long story, is that there were numerous, numerous attorney generals, and they all shifted like the wind. They did not rely on prior law. They changed the rules of evidence. And consequently, I just can't prove that that property is mine, and then I end up losing it. That's one route. And there are numerous other routes for property to lost. Spanish documents were not translated. The evidentiary standards were changed. Out and out lies, theft, violence, lynchings. Many property owners lost their land to the violence that we're seeing today, for example, uh, with linkages from the past. From the paper, it sounded like a whole range of different ways that these kinds of property claims were frustrated. Everything from theft, as you say, to destruction by fire of records, and in some cases, even just like lack of access to records stored remotely or the unwillingness of the authorities to credit the documents, even if they existed, it seems like. Remember, we didn't have Xerox machines in the 1800s, and so these were hand-copied documents. So there might have been slight variations from one day to the next. Or if you had, you had to have multiple copies because you had to have your copy and then you had to have a copy or your doc, original document. And then some of those documents had to make their way to Mexico. Now, so if there was a slight discrepancy, like a little wave of an L, uh, they would be, the owner would be accused of fraud. So a lot of fraud was thrown at them. And also, Brian, res judicata went out the window. There was no res judicata. Even though you might have demonstrated evidentiary proof of owning land, five, ten years later, somebody could challenge, nope, there was fraud involved, and the whole case would be reopened again. All sorts of unsettling practices, including offering the United States $10,000 to file a lawsuit against an individual who owned land in the name of the United States, recalling that it was the United States who promised to protect them in this treaty. Well, so in the beginning of the paper, you made, I thought, a really interesting observation about the rhetoric surrounding the treaty, specifically this idea that there was no need to have special consideration for or special recognition of the land claim status of former Mexican citizens because they would be treated just the same as everyone else. And and that didn't really work out as as promised. I mean, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and why you think that particular perspective is so telling, especially today. Yes. I, I didn't flesh it out in the early days as a young scholar, uh, which is also wonderful for me to go see how the, the jurisprudence of these practices endured and what their legacies are in the present, as we're seeing today, and all this hostile immigration, anti-immigration rhetoric that we're seeing. Uh, during its ratification, all sorts of promises were made by U.S. officials, including the Secretary of State, including the President, and there were protocols that followed thereafter. The Mexican residents choosing to remain in the properties became 
unsettled when they started seeing how the treaty was being diluted. And that began with removal of a key covenant, Article 10. In other words, those that had not satisfied all of the conditions subsequent because of interruption of war, that's how the Mexican ambassadors, that's the language they wanted, pertaining even more so to Texas, because remember, Texas had been succeeded earlier. We had individuals getting very nervous. So in the Protocol of Caretico, where the treaty itself was signed, you have the United States making promises in that protocol to those remaining that, yes, they would protect their land grants. Yes, they would enjoy the benefits of all citizens in the United States. And actually, a treaty was not needed, they said, because you had the beautiful covenant in the Constitution protecting them. And then we see that that doesn't pan out. That was an empty promise. So there's a whole layer of law out there showing why they thought they were going to be protected and why they were going to be treated as everyone else. Would have been an ownership of property, whether it would have been in New York or Texas or California. So you tell a lot of really interesting and compelling stories about particular landowners in in the paper. I wonder if you could kind of just point to one or two that you think are representative of sort of the experiences that especially women had at the time trying to make property claims uh, under the treaty in question? Well, let me give you an example. I'm now so excited because I was invited to, or I, my paper was accepted in the Feminist Judgment Series, Volume 2, Rewriting Property Decisions. And in it, I focus on both to the air, versus Dominguez, where Mrs. Dominguez had owned her property for decades and decades, was facing these squatters that were threatening her ownership of this particular property that had been in her family for over 70 years. The record is full of all sorts of background materials showing how industrious her farm had been. Her enterprise had been quite a successful endeavor for her and her family, such so that when her father passed on, she was able to accrue the property in her name. Squatters entered her fields claiming ownership under federal preemption law. Recall we had the Homestead Act coming into play at this point in time. So this statute now is challenging the supremacy clause of the United States. Early American history tells us how do we read these. That's another fascinating area of law. And if you read it literally and read the treaty and federal law at the time, and you accommodate legal precedent, Mrs. Dominguez should have won at the lower level, and she did. But then it went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court told her no. So in this property decision, rewritten property uh, ruling, I get to play Justice Luna, and I get to rewrite the opinion and what glorious fun that was. And so was this an opinion that reflected the same tensions between the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and Mexican law that you're talking about in this paper, or was it more of like a kind of a related reflection on property law more generally? Well, that's a fascinating question because the subtext of that, if I'm hearing you correctly, the subtext is that recall under the common law, women lack a legal autonomy. Yes, under Mexican law, women could pursue claims in courts of law, and they did. So you have that tension at play here. You have the tension also, believe it or not, with respect to all sorts of precedent that came along. 
prior to this decision. Dred Scott even is mentioned in my rewritten opinion. Or Justice Taney, who was Attorney General in Florida at the time and who had heard these land-grant claims involving Spanish property in the Florida territories, Louisiana, now changes the rules of law, telling us, no, never mind, I'm going to read this differently, and I'm going to award the property to the squatters. So there he, I did write an article about Justice Taney, and he just totally negated hardcore law that would have supported Mrs. Dominguez in her plea for defending this acreage, about 30,000 acres, I want to say. I might be wrong uh, in terms of specificity, but a lot of land was there. Several squatters were there claiming, you know, she wasn't industrious. That was the other thing that they were fighting at the time. U.S. ag law at the time was saying that we needed industry. We needed big farms. Isn't that not true today in the present? And consequently, uh, Mexicans, and this is what started me down this path originally, common law legal formalism tells us that they were loose, that they were ignorant. Horrible language is used to describe why they lost their land. So legal formalism is not a path that I cherish very much in these cases, if that makes sense. Difficult for me to reconcile the heinous language that I'm reading in these major U.S. opinions. When I see, when I start digging into these land-grant cases and start seeing how they did fight for their land because legal formalism tells us that these women did not fight for their land. And, in fact, I'm able to prove in these case studies, such as Mrs. Dominguez, Senora Peralta is another one. There's so many of them, Soto, how they went after their lands and they tried to succeed, notwithstanding all these barriers they were fighting. Um, Some of them married husbands that were land thieves. We had lawyers that were stealing land, judges in California, not California, but Colorado, maybe California. There were land rings in in Colorado where they took property from, they would marry into this family and then take over the property of the women because now you have the common law in conflict with civil law. And so the legal formalist trajectory tells us that it was all their fault. It was the fault of the women, the fault of the Mexicans that failed to protect their property rights. Yeah, I mean, reading reading the paper, I got the impression that there's almost like a heads I win, tails you lose sort of thing going on. I mean, it sounded like even women who had very well-documented property claims oftentimes had a difficult time in enforcing them or, or making a claim that the courts would recognize. And it sounded almost like courts were sort of would change the rules depending on what they needed to do in order to make them lose. Totally and completely correct, particularly at the bottom level where they had to yield to law. Law held the rules of the game shifted with the wind and held them hostage to the interpreters of the time. And there were numerous individuals that sat at the Board of Land Claims where you had to go initially to demonstrate documentary proof of ownership. So that shifted with the wind, with the political nuances of the day. There were all sorts of wonderful flyers before we had email and all kinds of means of production today and dispensing knowledge. You had all sorts of pamphlets of the day. Benjamin Franklin was known for handing them out. And that's how discourse started and engaged. All of that shifted. And I was lucky enough to find a couple 
that were very critical of the U.S. Attorney Generals, the United States, the legacy of these fallen cases. I admit to you one thing, though, Brian, if you might indulge a postmodern moment, is that it bothers me that I focus so much on these huge landowners with money. Eventually, they do, do lose their money. So for me, the fascinating part was how their class shifted from being landholders, land possessors, uh, to complete destitution. Mm-hmm. And many of their children and their heirs became farm workers. And they're still fighting for their land rights today, believe it or not, Brian. Every few years or so, interest in the treaty revives. and it refuses to die away, disappear. So I get calls periodically from groups. They finally become aware of the history, how their family lost land. If you go to the U.S. border in Texas, which is a fairly long border, you have many individuals residing in what's known as a rancho lifestyle. It is amazing where they grow their own food. Uh, they use all kinds of herbs and all kinds of ways to sustain the lifestyle at the board, and they're losing their land due to the horrible fence that cleaves this nation geographically. So, for example, the land of Estela Thomas, back about 10, 15 years ago, the United States wanted to go through her property. She fought. Her neighbors did not. And eventually won. But guess what? Before she could, as soon as the paper was dry, I don't even think the ink was dry on her paper, the Land Corp engineers refused her the time to indulge yet another survey and went up and constructed a fence in her backyard. So Mrs. Thomas now has to drive five miles down the road to get keys to get into her backyard, five miles back, and now she's in her backyard. In closing, I wonder if you could reflect a little bit more broadly on what you think the story you tell in this paper has to tell us today about the way we think about our relationship to the law and to land law, but more specifically in relation to kind of the universalist claims that seem to be so common for people to make about the sort of um, uh, neutrality of the law, as it were. Well, not that I'm emeritus. I would encourage young scholars, but they don't need my encouragement. I just love how new scholars go off and try to find new trajectories in law to answer to the social justice issue. Law for me can be transformative. And there are some brave souls out there daring to engage in a new way of looking at law from the bottom up. There are new scholars out there looking at law from an environmental standpoint, looking at law. So how does it impact those at the bottom versus those? And, well, actually comparing those with those at the top. So that's exciting for me is how do we look at law so that we don't yield to the false constraints of legal formalism? There is no universality in law that is a modem of law that's long outdated, dare I say it. Will I get hate mail, Brian? I don't know. (laughs) But, um, I want to say that the treaty itself is a living document. It still is. It's the oldest treaty between two nations in this hemisphere. It's the only treaty that impacts 
um, not only the indigenous, but also those of Mexican descent. And to look at it from a legal formalistic standpoint will yield a false norm. So as lawyers, if I can answer it from that angle, it's, it's our obligation to dig deep and not just rely on shoulds, coulds, and oughts. Does that answer somewhat? Second, the treaty, or third at this point, um, the treaty itself uh, is an exciting document because it's also a treaty from an environmental standpoint that means a lot impacts those from immigration law. And even more specifically, Brian, given the hostilities of today at the U.S. border, the treaty tells us that if unhappily is the exact word, if at any moment in time there are any disputes disruptive of the nation, generally speaking, then they have an obligation, the the treaty obligates both of the nations, both the United States and Mexico, to go back to the table and try to resolve the differences as good neighbors could and would. So for me, I think that's very important language and bears relevancy today given the horribleness of what is going on in the real world. We can't divorce law from what's happening in our neighborhoods, um, the horrible police killing of so many in our black, brown, and red communities, and even Asian communities. Uh, so the treaty itself could prove a value in the present, I know some people are going to international law, but I think that's critically important. But the treaty itself, I think, could prove a value for the new regime coming in, hopefully in November. Yeah, I mean, it seems especially timely given that the Supreme Court even seems to be reconsidering and reflecting on treaty relationships in a broader and more. Um, open-minded sort of way than perhaps it has in the past. So I wonder if it'll have any repercussions on this treaty as well. Excellent observation, Brian. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Guadalupe. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I really enjoyed the paper and I highly recommend it to listeners. Thank you for your kind words, Brian. I hope we succeed. Um, It was great fun. And I love this project, how it's not shy about it doesn't hurt its knowledge is what I like to say. And that's what I enjoy about your project. And I just love how I can take advantage of it without paying thousands of dollars to go to a conference. Amazing. Thanks again. Take care, Brian. Ande, mire, 
que ya escupe vamos tomando el camino, un mole de guajolote y unos vasos de tlamapa y la gente y el mitote y el jorongo como capa. Aunque diga que soy pillo, lo invito a tomar el carro. Estamos en Peralvillo y en media hora sobre el carro. Ándele, pague el pasaje y yo pago las medidas. Haga en honra del linaje una de sus aburridas y después el buen molito con su buena jonjolí nos vamos hasta el pocito a tomar de lo de allí. Luego volvemos y entramos a aquella gran iglesiota, los retablos curiosiamos con el alma ya grandota. Y en el altar, leo en medio, está la guadalupana, la que es divino remedio de la nación mexicana, la que puso el cura Hidalgo en su bandera tan linda cuando soñó en hacer algo que mi chola no deslinda. Soñó ese lindo quesito, algo que yo no colijo. Pues ándele, compadrito, que yo también soy su hijo. Acuérdese que Juan Diego se hincó derramando flores. Pues ándele luego, luego, virgen de nuestros amores. El hombre traga y no escupe ante la guadalupana. La virgen de Guadalupe es el alma mexicana y si extranjera amenaza que todo el mundo se muera ella salva a nuestra raza porque ella es nuestra bandera ¡Ay, Coco! ¿Que no te acuerdas de cuando la tienes plan? ¿Ya porque tienes tu ajonjolí? ¿Ya no te quieres acordar de mí? ¡Ay, Coco! Que no te acuerdas de cuando era sin mezclar, ay, ya porque tienes tu ajonjolí, ya no te quieres acordar de mí. ¡Sí!